Okay, good morning. All right, this morning's scripture is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Are we doing good? Sorry about the, uh, the bathroom situation. When one goes, they all go. They're a community like us. And um, I may have just heard that the children's one went too. I know, right? What's happening? Um, in other news, we have offering boxes on the sides and in the back. So <laughs> it's all. Uh, uh, all right, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pray. And we're gonna go. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for uh, for everything that you're doing for us, and uh, thank you for uh, bringing us together. Encourage us this morning. Give us what we need. Um, lighten our load. Let us. Um, Rest it uh, with you. Um, let us replace these heavy burdens that we carry with um, your ways, which are light, which are freeing. And uh, center us on you this morning. Make our lives um, a little more sanctified. Let us, let us learn how to engage in holy living and engage the kingdom going on around us. Thank you. In your name, amen. All right, so this morning... I'm going to start with, uh, what do we got here? I'm going to start with this guy. Um, this is Osculus. And I know you're all familiar with this guy. Um, he was about 450 years before the time of Jesus. He uh, was a poet, a writer, and what we call a um, tragedian is what they called him. I was like, where is, you ever have a word and you just can't remember? Tragedian. Um, he is the father of sort of the, the, um, the genre of tr- ancient tragedy. Um, and it's a form of drama that, that focuses on human suffering. It is uh, up until this point, uh, before this man sort of wrote a new way of, of doing dramas, there was, um, everything was sort of like a, a Thomas Kincaid painting. It was just way too happy and lies up and down. Everything was just super, super happy. Um, so if you're a Thomas Kincaid fan, I'm sorry. I'm just not, because it's not honest. It's not, everything is just not pretty and roses and flowers. And this guy recognized that. And he said, why are we trying to pacify everybody with all of this just happy stories, happy, happy dancing and all of this? So this guy realized that if you, if you tell an intense story that is real of human suffering, that is kind of the way people back then um, oftentimes um, lived, people would come and they would sit in the stands and they would watch and they would engage it and they would, you know, the mirror neurons in their brain would fire and they would feel what, what the people are feeling. And, and this was good all around because the people who were poor and the people who were in that particular city, wherever the play was being done, that were exiles, um, they would see on the stage someone that was relating to them. And oftentimes in our suffering, all we want is somebody to recognize that we are suffering and to affirm that we are suffering. And it gives us the power to push through. And so then there was uh, the other half of the audience would be very, very well off. There was no middle class back in these days. Um, They would be the very, very wealthy and they would be sitting there watching and um, they had never really felt these 
in-depth sufferings before, and so they would be watching these plays, and they would feel things they hadn't felt, and, and, and sometimes it's, it's really good to just engage and feel things you haven't felt before. So this guy invented these, this, this, um, this mode of, of doing plays and dramas known as the tragedy. He wrote over 90 of them, and we only have about seven that have survived, and some of them are still being done today. But one of his most profound lines that he wrote was this line right here. Men in exile feed on hope. People who are in exile feed on hope. Now, what is an exile? An exile uh, is someone who, uh, basically when, when I would use the Romans, for example, when the Romans would come in and take over a city, they would um, tell, basically they would give the city two options. They could become a full-on city of Rome. They would come with all kinds of benefits. Um, And if they fought back at all, and if they didn't fully comply with the orders of the emperor, the people would be gathered up and sent into exile. Uh, Basically, they would have to leave their homeland, their homes, and go to another city um, and live there. And the thinking behind this was actually quite brilliant. Um, If your own city and town is occupied, that is a personal thing, and you will rise up eventually and overthrow these people who are occupying your city. Um, If you are in another city that is not your city, you're probably not going to rise up and overthrow the oppressors, because you don't really have a connection with this piece of land, with this city, with these houses, with these people. Um, And so exiles were people that were conquered, and they would be sent away. Um, Now, um, so this was about 450 years before Jesus that he wrote all all of these things. So the the, the early Christians would have known about this guy. They would have seen his plays. They would have known... um, this idea that the exile, uh, people in exile feed on hope. And I want to look first at how, um, I'm actually going to go back to last week's passage and talk about how Peter describes the Christians. He starts off and he says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, the Christians weren't really exiles at all. Um, he calls them this for a reason. Um, they, they had not been conquered and they had not been sort of gathered together and shipped off. They were running for their lives and so there's a reason why Peter says, all of you who are, are, are struggling for, for survival in persecution, you are exiles. Why is he calling them that? Well, he's likening them to the ancient um, Israelites. He's likening them basically to the audience of the previous book that we studied, Genesis. It was, it was written to a people who were in exile who had been gathered up and brought out into Babylon, by, conquered by the Assyrians and brought to Babylon. And when this story of Genesis was written, it was written for a purpose. It was written to give hope to a people in exile, because again, people in exile feed on hope. They need it to survive. And so the book of Genesis was written to tell their story. And as you read their story, you see, oh, failure. And then God brings them out of it. And then failure, and God brings them out, and failure, and God brings them out. So as they study, the, as they read this book that had always just been oral tradition, and as it is written down in, in that day, it is sort of read out to these people, and they're, they're listening, and they're saying, wow, this is giving me hope, because I see how oftentimes through great suffering comes rebirth and salvation for people, entire cities. Um, and so... One of the questions that the Christians would have that I'm sure Peter would want to answer when writing them this letter and sending it out to them was, where is our hope? Where do we find our hope? And so the first thing Peter does, he tells them, you are exiles. He likens them to the Israelites. They know they're not exiles, and they would hear that, and they would say, oh, this is just like what the Israelites were going through. 
And here we are, two different people groups on both sides of Jesus, the Israelites before Jesus, the Christians being persecuted after Jesus, and Jesus stands in the middle. And as you think about the sufferings of Jesus, you realize that it is the book of Genesis. It's the story being told again in real life, and it's, it's the future stories of suffering, and it's, it's being told in the, in the story of Jesus, and Jesus' suffering and death, and through that comes the salvation of the entire world. And so this is an important thing for him to say to them, um, to call them exiles. Now, um, so they would have the big question, where do we place our hope? And so he likens them to this. And then he has something else for them to see here. Um, so today's passage, it starts off, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, there's a lot going on here. Um, hold on a second. I'm going to cough. and don't want to blow your, blow your eardrums. Um, the first thing that he says is he says, Blessed be to the God of our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. So he says, God has caused us to be something because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Um, and as you read this, you kind of, I, I do, I ask a lot of questions when I read things, um, has caused us to be born again. So there's a, there was a time when we were born before, so there's two different births, and you kind of have to grasp what are these two different births, um, to a living hope. So apparently when we were born before, we didn't have the same hope we have now. Um, what is this? What is it about our previous birth that we had different hope than we have now? And so as you ask these kind of questions, um, you can kind of put some things together. Now, um, I made some drawings this week, and I'm going to put them up here. I'm a terrible artist, but sometimes it's the only way I can describe what I'm thinking. Um, and I know they're not even going to translate well because our Screen kind of burns stuff out. Over here, I have an arrow pointing up, and it has the word hope. Over here, I have the word age, and it points this way. Hope and age. Um, oh, look at that. Yeah, good job. Um, up there, you're going to see a little orange light. That is your natural birth. That is the day you were born. You were born into an existence that all of us were born into uh, sort of the same. Um, and in this existence, we all sort of think the same way. Um, it's not hard to make a child happy. It's really not. For a long period of time, it's intensely hard to keep them happy. But for, you got five seconds, you can make a child pretty happy. You give them a toy, or you just smile at them. Or um, you kind of play with them, you do a little dance, you may talk in a high-pitched voice. You just, it's not hard um, at first. Um, children are born with intense hope that there are things out there that will make me extremely happy. And they are constantly looking for these things. And as they live their life, they have ingrained in, in their minds, in their hearts, the idea that there will be something that I will find that will make me infinitely happy. Um, you walk them through a store, they see something, and they go, that right there. I want that. If I had that, I would be so happy. I remember this time, I remember this feeling, and having these thoughts in my head, if I just had that, life would just be fine. It's a, it's a backpack shaped like a Ninja Turtle shell. I mean, how... <laughs> Um, how could that not make me happy forever? Um, and then, so eventually you get it and your hope kind of dies a little bit because you get these things, uh, you ever been into a kid's room and they've got like a pile of toys and there's like literally dust on these toys. They haven't played with them forever. When they received them, they were everything. They played with them for a day, a week, three months. If you spent over 80 bucks, they might play with it for three weeks. Um, and then they're going to finish playing with it and they're going to throw it in a pile behind them. It's going to sit there and that pile's going to grow as they go throughout their life. At some point, they 
they get something and they put their hope in it that it's going to make them happy and then they realize, oh, this isn't making me all that happy. And they put it down and they start looking for the next thing. Cake, popsicles, anything. So you get a little older. This eventually dies. You hit a point where you, you end this and you move into the next part of your life, maybe around college age, late high school, early college. And people start telling you, oh, you're in college now. And they encourage a way of life. Um, promiscuity, partying, just um, experiment with all kinds of stuff. Try all of these things, um, and it will make you happy. And so we go off to college with these hopes. We walk in with all our stuff with these hopes. I will find things here that will make me intensely, infinitely happy. It will be awesome. And as time goes by, they try each and every one of these things, and they don't find happiness. There's an entire book in the scriptures about this, by the way. It's called Ecclesiastes. Um, And it is an intensely rich man who literally tried everything that there is to try in his day and age. And at the end, he proclaims, it's just all vanity. There's just nothing to it. It doesn't make me happy. For a second, it does, but it's like the wind. And you're trying to grab it, and it doesn't make you happy. And so as life goes on, you graduate into the next part of your life where people say, okay, it's time to grow up now. I want you to think about that for a second. When people look at you and say, I mean, hold on. Uh, We've invented this thing called adolescence at some point back several decades ago. It's not a real thing, by the way. Um, we sort of invented this, and it's a way to prolong our childhood as long as we possibly can. When I was young, it, I got married at like 22, and these guys were like, why are you getting married at 22? I was like, why? How old are you? Like 40. Why are you not? What is wrong with you? Why are you not married? Um, and like, like, oh, I'm sleeping with all these women. And, and we would have these conversations. Like, you, you can commit your body to them, but not like your whole life, and then just kind of end that conversation. But there's, 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 a, there's, there's, it tends to be moving, and we're pushing the bar, and, and there comes a point in life where people look at you and you say, okay, it's time to grow up now. The same, people, the same people that encouraged you to do all the things that they knew, they knew weren't going to make you happy. That's why they're telling you it's time to grow up now. I have a new set of hopes and dreams, and you should adopt mine. I'm pretty sure these ones will make me happy. Those ones didn't, and those ones before them didn't, and those ones didn't either but these probably will. So try. And so they encourage you up front to do all these things. In other words, just to get it out of your system, to crush your hopes and dreams that you would find any kind of happiness in those things. Are you grasping what they're doing? And then they say, so now move into this. And now we're going to talk about 401ks and nice cars and houses, the American dream. All these things will make you happy, so they think. And as time goes on, this meter goes down and down. And this is your hope meter. Your hope meter is just dying. Because you have, what these things are, these are dying hopes. These are dying hopes. These are things that you put your hope in, this will make me happy, and it dies. Put your hope in. And this is not the way that we're supposed to live life. This is the way we are all naturally born into this sort of sinful world, if you will. This is the way that we are born into, and this is the way that we think. We are born into dying hopes, and we accept these dying hopes. Um, You can bring the lights back up. Um, the great prophet Sophia Loren. Just joking. Um, never quoted Sophia Loren in a, in a sermon, by the way, first. Um, she says this, and I found this profound for some reason. Um, the main emotion of the, of the American adult is disappointment. She said this. What did she have? Oh, everything. In the richest nation in the entire world. The main emotion of the American adult is disappointment. Somehow, in all that we have, we are disappointed with what we find. Dying hopes. And the longer you go throughout your life, the more of these hopes die until you get to a place where there's an age at which suicide rates 
double and then triple. And there's an age at which just hopelessness sets in. Um, in, in America, not in a lot of other countries, but in, in a lot of the wealthiest places in the world, this kind of happens. And I want you to realize why this happens and what is the root of all of this. We put our hopes in dying things, dying hopes. And so Peter says that we have been born again into a living hope. The second birth, when you realize who Jesus is and what he has done, is meant to reset you, reset your brain and reset your heart and attach it to things that are not like the things you had before. And so First Peter 1, 3, um, he keeps going and he says, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, through the resurrection. So the first thing that he tells us is the first thing that we ever notice about Jesus. When we first hear the story of Jesus, it's a little shocking because we are telling a story about a man who rose from the dead. If this is true... If this actually happened, this makes everything that he has to say vastly more important than anyone else who has ever lived. Because he conquered the very first fear that all of us have. All of us. Um, in the end, most of us just want to live a little longer. We want to have a little more wealth. We want to try to squeak out sort of a little more joy out of our life before we die. But we are told here by Peter that the story of Jesus is about resurrection. Now, um, I've preached a lot. If you've been here for a few years, I've preached a lot on the historical evidences for what exactly happened on Easter morning 2,000 years ago. Um, the tomb was empty. We know that. There were hundreds and hundreds of people who saw Jesus very much alive. He was dead, and then he's alive. And there's a religion that started in the, in the span of about three months that linguistics tell us takes about six years to actually get founded and start. And within three months, there was an entirely new belief system. And there's all kinds of historical evidences that I've laid out elsewhere uh, in resurrection sermons on the podcast that you should listen to if you're a skeptic of the resurrection. Um, Paul says, if you don't believe in that, you may as well not even be a follower of Christ because it's really all we have is the resurrection, but it's all we need is the resurrection. Um, And our first hope that we find is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, because that is our main fear. We all are terrified of dying. Everyone is. We all just don't want to die. And, and most of our life is centered around getting as much done as we can before we die. Um, one of my favorite books is a very, very large, thick book called The Divine Conspiracy. It takes a very long time to read, um, by Dallas Willard. And he writes about this idea of Christians who aren't as focused as they should be on the resurrection and who get sidetracked on other ideas. And he writes this, I meet many faithful Christians who, in spite of their faith, are deeply disappointed in how their lives have turned out. Sometimes it is simply a matter of how they experience aging, which they take to mean no longer have a future. And what they had hoped to accomplish in in life, they did not. And they painfully puzzle over whether God has really been with them And much of the distress of these good people comes from a failure to realize that their life lies before them. That they are coming to the end of their present life, life in the flesh, is of little significance. What is of significance is the kind of person that they have become. And so he talks basically about how there's a lot of people who are just so focused on death, even Christians, so focused on death and accomplishing things before they die. But this is a paradox. This shouldn't be. This is not something that we should be focusing on. Um, I want to show you why we should, why we have to be 
born again. And exactly what he is talking about when he says our first hope was on sort of a um, dying hopes. That's what we were born into. And here's what happens when we were born into different ways. So I'm going to put this graph up here, and we're going to work from here, and we're going to work our way up. When we first hear about the resurrection, it kind of gives us some hope that like, oh, oh, if that really happened, that's kind of a big deal. And so we put a lot of hope in that. And as time goes on, as our, as our dying hopes, we, we put our hooks in them and they die, we start to move along in life and we start to remove our hooks from these dying things and we say, you know, there's got to be something bigger and better to hook my hopes into. And so we start removing them from these other things. Um, as our dying hopes are killed off, they lay before us. Look, we must come to the realization that our hopes have to be transferred onto something that is living. As, as, as these things melt away, we have to start shifting our hope away from dying things and onto Jesus. And we have to start seeing that, that what we do in this life, the kind of person that we are, it really does matter. And somehow the decisions that we make are not temporary. Somehow, if Jesus rose from the dead, the decisions that we make will matter. They will stay. They will stick. And they are eternal. Somehow, the decisions that we make for righteousness take part in the establishment of God's kingdom here, and it will not just be all wiped away. It will not just be done away with. Um, In fact, the decisions that we make are eternal. Now, a lot of Christians, when we talk about eternal life, they think, well, I have eternal life. What does that mean? It means when I die, um, my eternal life starts. I would argue that it's a complete misunderstanding of eternal life. And I I, I want to explain to you why. Our hope is not eternal life beginning when we die. Eternal life begins when you awaken. That's how uh, the prophets called it, awaken from your sleep. Um, When you realize that, oh, this, all this temporary, this is not all that there is. There is more. My hopes are not in what I find here. My hopes are somewhere else. And we remove our hooks, our anchors from these earthly things and we put them on spiritual things and we step out of this life and we start putting our anchors in the fact that Life is not the end. Death is not the end. Beyond that, there is life that will continue and will keep going because eternal life is something that begins right now. It is a way of thinking and a way of living that is focused on not the temporal, but the future. You see, our hopes, the things that we hope for, determine our choices. If, if you have been hoping for some promotion, The choices that you have been making at work have been moving towards that promotion. If you have hope in this world, if you have hope in the fact that God really is going to make things right, that he really is going to restore everything and make it the way it is supposed to be, then you will live differently. Um, I almost did this, but I didn't. I was going to have a bunch of pieces of paper and a bunch of pencils and, and ask you guys, kind of, hey, before we get going here, I want you to write down three, three things that you've been hoping for. Maybe lately, the last week, last month, last year. Three, three things that you have been hoping for. What are they? And I imagine your answers would have varied. Um, I really want to finish school. I really want to um, get a house. I really want to start investing. I really want to build a nonprofit. I really, all these things. Um, And at this point in the sermon, I would have had you pull out that little list and I would have asked you to look at it and said, now, of these three things that you wrote down, how many of them are eternal things? How many of them are dying hopes and how many of them are living hopes? How many of them you will accomplish and that will end and your life will move on?
Because a lot of us are working and working and working for something, and when you get there, there is always a day after. What then? Do you, do you have a goal that is eternal, or is it just going to come to the end of its line at about the age of 45 or 50, and then you're just like, well, I did that one. You'll spend the rest of your life telling about how you did that one time. Um, do any of your daily current choices invest in parts of life that will remain forever? If you were to follow the trajectory of your life right now, is it one that leads closer and closer to your sanctification? Or is it one that at the end of your life will have all of your hopes and dreams will be dead and done? And you'll be able to say, well, I did everything I wanted to do in life. That's not what I want. I want to say I took part in something that is not over yet and will continue. I want to know that the decisions I made mattered. If, um, there's a really great thing that John Calvin said one time when someone asked him, hey, if, if, you, if you found out that, that Jesus was, was coming storming back in tomorrow and taking over, what would you do? He said, I'd plant a tree because I want to take part in the restoration and the renewal of all things. John Calvin said that. Um, uh, the writer of Hebrews puts it like this. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul that we have, we have a lot of hopes. Our, 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 sort of our wallet is oftentimes anchored in sort of our investments and our budgets and our health is oftentimes anchored in um, our daily exercise regimen and, and our diet and our doctor's feedback. But where is your hope anchored at all? Where is it anchored? And are these other things that your life is anchored in? I mean, does that chain run back to your soul? Is your heart, is the soul, is who you are and what you know about the world, about the spiritual world and about life, does that determine your choices? Oftentimes it doesn't. Um, Peter says that our hope is to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, um, there are some here, I would imagine, who are oppressed, abused, ignored, beaten down in some form of intense suffering. I'm glad you're here this morning, and I, I, I want you to see this. Because if you are battered and, and, and beaten... Peter is telling us about a hope that cannot be taken away from us. Do you know why so many slaves were attracted to Christianity? Because they had been oppressed and there was nothing in this world for them, and so they reached beyond this world to the things that Christianity was offering them. They were drawn to something that no slave owner could take away, no beating, no whipping could dismantle. Um, it did not fade in life. Um, and I want you to think about this and I want you to grasp this. The things that most people who are not born again, if you will, um, are chasing after, as they get towards the end of their life, they will have fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer of those things. Those who are born again, who are living the eternal life now and reaching for eternal things, as they move towards the end of their life, these things will come closer and closer and closer, not farther. They will not become more tarnished. They will move closer to you until the day when you actually receive them. And you will actually find that fulfillment that you have always been searching for. Otherwise, by the end of your life, 
all of your hopes and all of your dreams, the things that you have anchored your life into will have been dead and gone in a massive pile behind you and you will say, I did everything and now it's just time to die. If you allow yourself to be born again, to reorientate your life around Jesus, then you will find things that cannot be taken away, that you cannot be disillusioned by. And you will start to realize if you are the person that is ignored, you are actually not ignored. If you are the person who is actually um, friendless, you will find a friend who sticks closer than a brother. If you are the kind of person who is beaten down, you will find a God who himself was beaten down and understands and has been where you are. If you are a person who is impoverished and you are worried about how you will survive and your hopes are somehow in these meals that that are coming in, um, you will find a God who has, for thousands of years, provided for people for 40 years, fed them every single day. And all of this tells us that he intensely cares about you. And he is there. And he is caring. He knows what it's like even to hunger as he gave up hunger for four, 40 days in the desert. Um, I am slowly learning a lot every day over the years that if I'm beaten down and if I'm angry and if I'm upset, a lot of times it has to do with my misplaced hopes. It has to do with the fact that the hopes that I have, I have placed in different things that were not God and now they have fallen apart. They have died. They were dying hopes And now I'm just really miserable about the whole thing. Um, I found that when I put my hope in people and I expect people to build me up and make me happy, um, look, people fail you, they hurt you, they turn on you, they leave you, they move away, and they die. We cannot place our hope in other people. Our hope for relation, for love, perfection, and praise, and identity cannot be found in other people. It was supposed to be found in Jesus and what he did in God and who he created you to be. And when we put that hope in people, we are taking Jesus off of the throne and we are putting this person there and saying, give me the things that Jesus was supposed to give me. That is really bad for your relationships. That ruins them. And then oftentimes I put my hope in a job like this church, like building something, and I, and I tell myself, if we'd hit certain landmarks and certain, certain things, then it would be really great and we could show the church is growing and we could... And people, and somehow that this would affirm my life, that your job doesn't affirm your life or who you are. This whole, like, um, find your career in life and do it for the rest of that was invented in the 50s. Do you realize that? People used to actually just live for other people in relationship and community. And what they did, they only did so that they could have the freedom to be with other people and help other people. That did not define them. This defined them who they were, what kind of person they were, um, their faith and their love. Um, these are the things that used to define people. So oftentimes, you know, I, I strive for these milestones and I think I'll be fulfilled in all my toil in life. And those moments come and they go and it feels no different. Monday always comes. And you're like, well, that was something. Next. It's just not fulfilling. And then oftentimes I put my hope maybe in my kids. And I want you to think about this. A lot of people they talk about their kids like my kids. It's, it's, my kids give me purpose in life. I get what you're saying, but that's really dangerous. God and Jesus, that, that's supposed to give you purpose in life. When you take God off the throne and you put your kids on the throne, that's really dangerous. You're going to break them. Children are there for you to love and to serve and you to raise and to teach about God. They, 
to put on their shoulders the weight of your purpose in life. Sit down to a five-year-old, hey, you, you are here to give me a purpose in life. Get busy. <laughs> oh my goodness, such a heavy load on a five-year-old. But we never think about that. These children are a gift to us to take care of, and we don't put our hopes and our dreams on them because they are people, and they will fail. Some of them will not turn out the way that you had planned, but they have a spiritual journey. God is still their God. God is following them and chasing them. Um, and that's idolatry. Sometimes I put my hope in making music or art or just something Then you want to get... I, I've heard people say, you know, I just want to leave something behind so that when I'm dead and gone, people will have something to enjoy. And I kind of want to ask you, is, is that the reason that for incredible amounts of time, space, and time was weaved together by God and you were created in your mother's womb and put here and all the planets and the stars were, so that people could remember you were here. Now, oftentimes we make things, we create things so we can get a lot of attention and we, we want as much attention, basically the way this works is we're trying to get as much attention as we can before, before we die so that that many people will know that we're gone. That'll last maybe 80 years and nobody's going to know who you are unless you did something really great and then you got maybe a hundred. But that is not what life is about. The, the entirety of the cosmos and your body being weaved together from, from trillions of tiny atoms is not so that you will be noticed. And you're forgetting that you are noticed already. You are a child of God and he sees you and he created you. Um, it's so much different than... When we are actually born again, the mindset that we are supposed to have on our life is completely supposed to change. It should. Um, Revelation, at the very end of Scripture, describes it like this, and I I love this. Um, And they shall live with his face in view, and that they belong to him will show on their faces, and darkness will no longer be. They will have no need of lamps or sunlight because God the Lord will be their radiance. And it will be radiant in their midst. And they will reign through the ages of ages. Now, you can read a lot of commentaries on all of this. Um, There's not a single theologian in history that's been able to fully lay out what all of this means. But they all agree, it's pretty incredible. Whatever this final thing is that God is doing, he has promised us it is fulfilling in every way. And it is peaceful And those three things that you would have written down on that piece of paper, there's a good chance that they have nothing to do with this. And there's a good chance that that even if you were to receive all three of those things that you were to write on that imaginary paper, um, that you would not be fulfilled. This sounds incredibly fulfilling. And from everything I've seen in life and everything I've read from people who have had everything and not found happiness... And, and from all the movie stars who have found fame and fortune and then, and then committed suicide, this seems like a much better idea. It seems to me like it is better to place your hopes in a living hope than in dying hopes. And so a lot of us need to spend a lot more time sort of recalibrating our lives. We need to kind of realize that the suffering that, that a lot of us are going through sometimes can be likened to the exiles of Israel who 
it was because of their suffering, oftentimes, that God brought about better things. It is because of the suffering of Jesus that God brought about better things. And, and here's a fascinating thought. Had Nero never started persecuting the Christians, and had they not ran, Christianity would not have spread the way it was supposed to. We would not be here today had Nero not launched out and started persecuting and burning alive Christians and killing them. Because Nero did that, Christianity is stronger now. It is here. It may not even have been here. That was all part of God's plan. And there's a, there's a fascinating little um, thing that I snuck in here from, from The Hobbit. Okay? I'm, uh, there's a, I know. I know. So Nerds rejoice. Um, there's a conversation that happens between Bilbo and Gandalf, and I read that, and I was like, oh, man, epic. So here it is. Bilbo's talking, and he says, then the prophecies of the old songs have turned out to be true after a fashion? Of course, said Gandalf, and why should they not prove true? Surely you don't believe, disbelieve the prophecies because you had a hand in bringing them about yourself. You don't really suppose, do you, that all of your adventures and escapes were managed by mere luck, just for your sole benefit? You are a very fine person, Mr. Baggins, and I am very fond of you, but you are only quite a little fellow in a wide world after all. I love that. I think he's capturing sort of the heart of what Peter's getting at here. Um, There is a God who is in control, and it's much better to put our anchors on that than on these other things that we're striving for every day. And I say all that so you can have peace. You don't have to receive those things. It's okay if you don't. Sometimes it's better if you don't. You can be at peace and you can, you can be at one with God and, and you can be at one with your community and you can focus on the people around you and you can pour into them. And these are actually things that are far more beneficial, far more beneficial and far more eternal than anything else you're striving for in your life. And so I want to offer you the choice and I want to encourage you to be free to put those dreams aside. I want to release you from them. We don't need you to accomplish them. We don't need it. We love you the way you are, and we want to help you grow in your sanctification daily, more and more and more. So be free. Uh, If you are a follower of Jesus, your eternal life has already begun. You need to be calibrating this trajectory daily of your life. As things fail you, as you find yourself unhappy, miserable, ask yourself, am I unhappy because I put so much hope in that and I shouldn't have? It's entirely possible. And so unhook that anchor and place it on Jesus. We're going to go to communion right now and um, so our communion servers can go ahead and, uh, and get ready. And um, I don't know where all of you are at. I have no way of knowing that. I, I know one of the things about being a pastor is I... I know what a lot of you are going through. I, I not only carry my things, but I carry your things, and some of them are much heavier than anything I will ever deal with. And I want you to know that you are loved intensely, that you are forgiven, that the grace of God is open to you. You are not defined by your failures. You are defined by the success of Jesus in conquering sin and conquering death and giving you new life. And so that's what we do every single day with communion. Um, We take a piece of bread that is broken. It symbolizes the body of Christ broken for you. And we take that bread and we dip it in the wine. It symbolizes the blood of Christ poured out for you. And we eat it. And and it represents the gospel going down inside of us. And it's it's something we do to remember what Jesus did and how he suffered. Um, And we spend some time in repentance. God, help me to change my purpose in life. Help me to unhook my anchors that are in dying things. Help me hook them to living hopes. So let's pray and then let's take communion. 
Father, we love you. You are a holy, wonderful, perfect, good God. So many of us are waiting for just certain things to happen in life, thinking that somehow we will be happy at that point, we will be fulfilled, and, and we'll find purpose. Free us from that. Free us from the disappointment that is coming our way. Help us to wake up so that we don't end up like millions who have come before us who find nothing but misery at the end. There are some who are walking not on the wide path, but on the thinner, smaller, more difficult path that are awake and that realize that life is about more and that life is about pursuing eternal things. Help us to become those people. Put us on that path that leads towards you, towards salvation for ourselves and salvation for this world. We love you, God. In your name, amen. Take some time and talk to God.